it all started in Mendoza, though, during the pandemic, that I realized that, you know, we can't turn back and try to embrace the past. The past is gone. So everything that did well in the past, before the pandemic, I don't know if things will come back. I really, I'm, I'm quite skeptical about it. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as the home and design director at Departures Magazine, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. During this year's long pandemic winter, and through the miracle of Zoom, I realized I could connect with some of the most fascinating people and places, as I always have. But instead of cutting down an hour-long interview to just a few quotes, I could dig deeper and share my unfiltered access to these personalities with the world. And not just interior designers, but hoteliers, architects, painters, and even chefs. To me, they're all cut from the same cloth. The show is named after the epic trips taken through Europe, mostly in the 17th and 18th centuries, that were considered a kind of education where young aristocrats would learn about art, history, culture, and architecture, and then return home an educated gentleman ready to enter society. And that's my hope for the Grand Tourist. Maybe you'll learn a thing or two about the world that I travel in and have a bit of fun along the way. For my first episode, I'm speaking with Argentine chef Francis Malman, but he's no ordinary cook. So if you have a vision of a man with a chef's hat barking orders in a crowded stainless steel kitchen, you're way off base. Malman has been a fixture on TV screens in South America for decades and is the author of many cookbooks, including the 2013 success Seven Fires that has become something of a grilling Bible. But in 2015, he starred in the first season of the Netflix series Chef's Table and became an international star. In the show, which I can't recommend highly enough, he's portrayed as a kind of nomadic cowboy oracle or Jedi master of grilling combining one part Ernest Hemingway, one part Zen Buddhist monk, with a bit of Pablo Picasso thrown in for good measure. Even if you know little about food, his romantic way of looking at the world is absolutely captivating. For Malman, food and hospitality is less about eating and more about a way of life. Yes, he has restaurants all over the world. He opened two in the past year or so alone, which we'll speak about, but he doesn't like to stay in any one place for long. His rustic style of Argentine and Patagonian barbecue may look casual, but it's done with the utmost intent, preparation, and authenticity. Yes, it's slow food and totally rustic, but it goes way beyond that. Today, he's known for hosting some of the world's most exclusive cookouts for private clients on his own island in Patagonia, hundreds of miles from anywhere. At his lodge called La Soplata, meals are cooked over open fires and buried in pits, and his methods take hours and have a kind of what-will-be-will-be will be magic that seems impossible for mere mortals to duplicate, even though many have tried. If you just want cooking advice from Malman, you're missing the point. Instead, I think there are endless lessons to learn from him in terms of living any creative life. But the pandemic has shifted his thinking about the next phases of his career. He has an upcoming vegan cookbook he's been working on for years, He's filming a documentary, and he has strong opinions, of course, about how life should be lived after lockdown. And this guy really knows how to live. I caught up with Malman at his home in Uruguay to talk about his early life both in Argentina and abroad, and stick around to the very end for a special performance. I think I was two when I, the first trip to America, 
uh, with my parents. Uh, we 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 moved there, and I think we lived there uh, uh, for four or five years until we came back to to Argentina. We went back to Argentina to Patagonia to Bariloche. My father was a physicist, so he had a job up there in, a cent- in, a, in an atomic center, and then he moved to an atomic center in Argentina. So that's how my first relation with America was, was in, in a little town called Naperville. They say your worldview is cemented when you're about 13 years old. In the late 60s and into the 70s in Argentina, it was a very tumultuous time with political strife, a coup d'etat, a brutal dictatorship, and so on especially when you consider that your father was a prominent physicist during the Cold War. How did this affect you? Well, you know, you know how you are when you're kids, you know. Um, it was difficult. God, we were so afraid of the police and the militaries. Uh, so, you know, we had these things where if we were walking in the street and we would see them walking towards us, we would slowly change lanes. Um, many of my friends disappeared from school. We never heard from them again. My father was pressed by the militaries to close his foundation, a, a postgraduate school. Um, so, you know, there were difficult times, but at that age, you're full of hope. So because of the bad situation, when I was, I think, 17, I moved to California for a year. And, um, and then I, I, I came back and I started my first restaurant uh, when I was, I think, 18. With a friend of mine. When you were young, I, you know, you've, you've spoken a lot about your love of music and the sort of sound of the 60s and maybe the early 70s. Is that something that's still a part of your life? Do you like to listen to music when you're just living or cooking or? Yeah. Well, music is, is, is a very important part of my life. I, I had a very classical upbringing in music uh, because of school, because of teachers, because of my father who loved classical music. So that was rooted inside of me. But then, you know, when, when the hippies came and the good rock and roll started, uh, well, that's the reason why I moved to California to follow those bands and those musicians that I like. And I stayed a year there going to concerts and doing odd jobs, surviving. And then, and then I came back. But yes, music still today is very important. Uh, I start breakfast in the morning with music and I go on. The Grand Tourist is sponsored by B&B Italia, a leader in luxury designer furniture. Founded in 1966, the company stands out for its representation of contemporary culture and for its research and innovation, which has allowed the brand to create products with unique style and elegance. B&B is the fruitful partnership between the company's research and development center in Northern Italy and the best international design professionals. The iconic products of B&B Italia radically mark the history of design. The brand has so many legendary pieces, there's one to fit every personality. If I were to suggest an icon of B&B Italia to Francis Malman, I would suggest one of the groovy up chairs by Gaetano Pesce, designed in the late 60s. As an amorous and romantic fellow, I'm sure he'd love to read some poetry or enjoy a glass of wine on its voluptuous, female-like form. Which iconic work of design is right for your personality? Visit bebitalia.com for more information. I learned from the grapevine that Malman was feeling nostalgic about his legendary first restaurant called Los Negros, which was in the small town of Jose Ignacio, Uruguay, and closed in 2006. 
He was there for nearly 30 years, and during that time, both his career and the town gained in stature. Jose Ignacio went from fishing village to hotspot, and he became the coolest host in all of South America. I, I started working in that town in 1978. So, you know, uh, we had some good summers in the 80s. And then I think in the middle of the 90s, it sort of became a, a sort of a glamorous town. And we started getting people from all around the world. And but always it was sort of like a summer thing. But I, I wanted to keep it open all year. And I did on the weekends. And that was, that was a struggle, but it was a beautiful struggle because uh, I think people appreciated it and would come on the weekends and we had a fire by the sea and I don't know, it was nice. What was a, a Saturday night like at Los Negros? You know, how would you describe the energy? Well, in the summertime, you know, we would do, God, up to 300 people a day. We wouldn't close. We would open at 12 at lunch and and kept on going until 2, 3 a.m. when we closed the restaurant to clean and so whatnot. But um, so the scene was, yes, you know, beautiful people. I, I had poems written in the walls and uh, I would change them every month of December before the season. I would put a fresh new poems in all the restaurants. I had this wonderful writer who would come and spend days and days writing the poems in every possible language. And that was nice because, you know, some people enjoyed reading them and it was a, they, they would talk about this poem or that poem. Some of them were very well known and some of them were not. And um, so that was an important part of the restaurant, the poetry. Why, why do you say that? What, was, what made poetry so essential? Well, I love languages and words. I think they're the, our biggest asset. Uh, they take no, no space. We take them everywhere, and they tend to improve with age. And poetry, I, I love poetry. Uh, I like, I'm, I'm a big admirer of, of many, many poets. Uh, some, of, some of the poems st stayed in, in one of the walls for many years, and the other ones would change depending on my thoughts, depending on the things I had read that year. And I, I was always keeping a sort of a file with, with the new poems for next year. And where did this love of poetry begin? Was it something from your family or um, something you discovered on your own? I think I discovered it on my own. I think it was, uh, I think it was, I don't know, an English girlfriend when I was young that gave me this beautiful anthology of English poetry, and I think it started there. And then I, at some point, I began studying a lot the, the Russian poems, the poets that I like. And, uh, and then I went into France and to uh, America. Uh, and, you know, I, I like studying poems besides enjoying them as a read. Uh, I memorize lots of them, and I really like them. Do you still like to memorize things today or do you? Oh, yeah, very much. There, you know, there's this poem of, of Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven, which is very well known that I know it by heart. But it's like it's like 20 minutes, I think, or 15 minutes. It's very long. <laughs> Talking about Los Negros again, you know, what lessons do you pull from that time? Well, I think that the most important one is that, you know, I've, I think I've been I sort of specialized in my working lifetime to to see this light in 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 the people 
that work for me. You know, it's like an aura of, of, of hope and of resilience and of strength that I see in some people that work with me. And, and those people have always been chosen by me. Um, and I've, I've sort of walked with them um, into this, this beautiful world that a restaurant is, that is touched by everything. You know, it's like, it's generalism because at the end, you know, sitting down to eat a plate of something and a glass of wine, it, it, the most important thing and the only important thing is, is that you're sharing with someone, you know. That's the beauty about eating. It's not if you're eating caviar or drinking Krug champagne, uh, who cares? Uh, it can be, you know, a humble wine and a, and a piece of lamb with rice, but, you know, you're sitting in a table with six incredible people talking, being witty, and I think that's the most beautiful thing. So I think that that was important in Ed Los Negros. Many of the chefs who worked with me there, ladies and men, became very, very important chefs in the world. And uh, I like that very much. But that goes on today, you know, in, in, in all my restaurants where we, I walk into a kitchen and immediately I can see this light in someone or in the dining room. You know, I see this how they walk, how they talk, how they express, how they move. And I realize that that is a chosen person. And I, I appreciate that a lot because without staff and good people as I have, I will be nothing. Can you tell that light in somebody when you interview them? Or is this something where you need to see them in action? Yeah, I, I see it more in action. You know, uh, you know, if you, if you have a, a with 10 chefs, you, you can immediately see that there's one or two that are just starting, but they, they have this light and this energy and this hope and this will. And you realize that they, they will become something very good. You become sort of a, a silent teacher just by choosing the next steps for them. You know, suddenly they are in a trip suddenly they're working in another restaurant and then one day um, they they become a, a very very good chef uh, so that that's the way i work i never hire chefs who have worked anywhere else i always hire people who start from scratch that's what i really like you know so you, they they really um, learn the language of a uh, our, our thoughts and our doing. And it, are there bad habits that chefs can sort of accumulate when they start with somebody else? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very bad. Very bad. No, the, well, the worst one is the one that, you know, smiles and says, yes, chef, and he turns around and he does whatever he wants. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a world of, you know, of saying yes and saying no. That's the beauty of life, you know is saying many times yes and many times no. And the balance of that is a nice life, I think. If you always say yes or always say no, you're in the border of falling into some horrible monsters. You've opened two restaurants recently, which is remarkable for this pandemic era. One is Ramos Generales, which is in Mendoza, Argentina. The other is Chiringuito, which is a place on the water in Uruguay, about 45 minutes from Punta del Este. Does Chiringuito remind you of your time at Los Negros? It's quite different, but it all started in Mendoza, though, during the pandemic, that I realized that 
You know, we can't turn back and try to embrace the past. The past is gone. So everything that did well in the past before the pandemic, I don't know if things will come back. I really, I'm, I'm quite skeptical about it. So I decided to open a restaurant on a field in front of the Andes in the winter. You know, Mendoza has sun almost every day of the year. And in the winter, you, you're maybe minus five, but there's no wind and, and you have the beautiful sun from the mountain. So you can sit outside and lunch. And that restaurant became a huge success immediately because we had this very big space, a lot of, of, of meters between the tables and people started going. And, you know, we've been open since then, since I think April. And, you know, we're doing two or 300 people a day there. And then... When I came to Uruguay, uh, I have a beautiful hotel here that I've had for 20 years called Garçon with a restaurant. And I decided not to open that this summer. And so I decided in <clears throat> sorry, sort of five months ago to open a, a restaurant on the beach. Chiringuito means in our world, a place where you eat something with your feet in, in the sand. So it's, it's more like a humble place where you, you will eat a, a sandwich, uh, you have a, a simple drink, uh, and then you go back to the beach. Uh, so I called it Chiringuito, but it, it's quite upscale, though. You know, it's in the sand. You have your feet in the sand. The tables are four meters away from the water. You see the waves. And we have a system of protecting these little huts with no roofs, but with a shade from the wind. And so it's, it's, it's what we did in, in Mendoza, but on the beach. And that has been very successful too. Even though we didn't have many tourism this summer, we, we, we did work well. We're still open you know, on the weekends and it's very beautiful. When you say you're not convinced that things will be the same um, in this world moving forward, tell me about that. What, what do you think, what does your gut tell you about how this world is changing? I don't know, you know, I feel that we, in order to, to, to keep on going, we, we all have to change. You know, I think about all the beautiful hotels in the world where I like to stay when I travel, that I, I love very much. And I have a feeling that, yes, they will exist but in a different way. You know, we have to, we have to change. I think that uh, this has been a call for humans, but for the planet as well. And each one of us to pull up, pull up our pants and uh, start doing what individually each one has to do to improve uh, the existence of this planet. But I think it's very damaged and hurt, as we all know. This is actually a, a, a good time to speak about your, your upcoming book. And you've been working on this book for, for quite some time now. Oh, three years, three years. Yes, yes. We're still doing photographs soon. Uh, yes, it's it's a very nice project. Uh, I I believe that uh, you know we will be eating not too much meat or fish uh, in the near future because we have completely destroyed the, the environment and the ocean, especially. Uh, so I think that will change a lot, and. Um, there's a beautiful movement in the very young people, like age 16 to 22, where they, they have changed their, the way of eating. 
and they they're very respectful about others that's what i like you know in the past we used to get people with signs shouting at us when we were cooking in the street meat but nowadays you have these youngsters who say master we love your food chef and we love the way you cook by the way we're vegan but we still enjoy seeing what, what you do so at one point i thought well god i i i owe these young people something because they love what I do, but they can't eat it. So I decided to start this book three years ago. And it's been like a mirror, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you look at yourself and you say, God, I look ghastly. Um, and, so, and so this book has taught me so much, you know, it made me think a lot. And it's interesting. Again, we have to change. You're known for for many of your wonderful cookbooks, are you someone who has the idea for the cookbook and then experiments with foods in order to create the recipes that go in the book? Or is it the reverse? You, you, you sort of do a body work and then you say, okay, we'll, we'll put it into a book afterwards. When you're no, done. I always have a lot of trouble with my editor in New York because they say to me, Francis, okay, new book, send me, send us the plan, the recipe. And I don't, I, you know, I do a lot of TV and in the books and in TV, I do the same thing. I send a truck with food to a beautiful place. I put my tables outside in the sun or in the shade and I start cooking. I never have a plan. So it's not that I say, ah, I'm going to do put this recipe in the book. So we have this sort of museum of beautiful vegetables and rices and things. And I walk around and I say, well, let's do this in the plancha. Let's cook this in the embers, let's cook this in a, in a wood oven, let's do something on the grill and so on. So that's the way I work. No, there are no plans, never. <laughs> no plans. Um, when you're in, in doing this vegan cookbook, was there anything that you discovered yourself or that in your sort of in the doing that you, uh, a particular fruit or vegetable that you, that you fell in love with uh, f because of the book, because of working on it? No, but... I started thinking in a different ways towards vegetables. I, I started thinking, how can I make a substantial dish that is like a steak, you know, or it's like a beautiful fish it, with these things. So I said, my aim was to produce 10 recipes in the book that you would give to a, a person and would be delicious, beautiful, and a vegan. So that has been my aim, and I've, I've worked a lot, and I think we accomplished quite a lot of it. But, uh, you know, I'm in love with so many things, but with, uh, I love ratatouilles, for example. So the, there's mm. a chapter of ratatouilles, of different ratatouilles, because they react in very different ways, uh, depending how you cook them. You worked in Paris as a young chef before returning home to South America. Has this era dented your admiration for Paris? Do you still love it? Oh, yeah. It's the only place in the world where I want to be. And uh, in fact, I have a very beautiful old car here that I use sometimes. It's an English Amstron Sidley. And yesterday, uh, I sat, it's a limousine. I sat with my two children in the back, age three and eight mm -hmm. and the car was parked and i said to them let's go to paris 
and, and we both, and, and the three of us, we did this beautiful trip. It, it made me cry. And I said, oh, there's a Tour Eiffel. Here we are in, 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 in La Concorde and whatever. And my eight-year-old, she loves Paris too, and she knows it quite well because we go very often. So yes, I want to go to Paris. She's a she's sort of a lover of mine, Paris. I always say it. She, I always ask her to, to sleep with me, but yeah, every night when I call her, she says, oh, dear Francis, call me tomorrow. <laughs> uh, call me tomorrow. I'm very busy today. And, and I've been in haste waiting for 50 years. But maybe one day she will. Before we return to Francis, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Artemis. Artemis is the world's fastest growing online retail destination for exclusive Italian luxury design, decor, lighting, and gifts. Founded in 2015, Artemis celebrates and preserves authentic Italian craftsmanship by providing a global platform for independent designers and artisans. The site represents over 1,000 independent producers, designer makers, and artisans, and features thousands of exclusive products. The unparalleled online edit you find on Artemis includes the most extraordinary Italian makers for which the country is world-renowned. Design lovers and casual shoppers alike can search through more than 50,000 works of furniture, lighting, decorative arts, entertaining, and gifts. And you can take a closer look with multimedia content, such as 360-degree views, videos, and detailed descriptions of each maker's history and specialized techniques. Listeners of this podcast can enjoy 10% off at Artemis with the code THEGRANDTOURIST, that's one word. So visit Artemis.com for more information. That's A-R-T-E-M-E-S-T dot com. I've met dozens of designers and artists in my time that you'd probably call the bad boys of whatever field they're in. The more I meet and listen to, I think there's a common thread amongst all of them. The lessons they have to share are almost never about the craft itself, but about something totally universal. I heard that he was working on a documentary, and after watching the Chef's Table episode, I just had to find out more about it. I heard you're, you're shooting a documentary in Mendoza. Is that, is that true? Yes, we're, yeah, I'm doing a documentary about disobedience because I think that it's, disobedience is and has been the, the engine of the world. It's, it's what has provided changes to, for the world. And I, I really believe in disobedience. And how do you, how do you communicate disobedience in, in food and in your, in your everyday life? Well, you know, in, in cooking, uh, you know, one day I decided to cook a bread in, in the ashes and it's called cara sucia and uh, that's disobedient. Uh, or moving a restaurant to a little town like this one, you know, a hundred miles away from the city in the middle of the mountains and being successful after 20 years, that's being disobedient. Uh, so, I think disobedience, it's very important in life. I think we have to be, and we, we have to keep that light of disobedience every day. And if you were, you were speaking to a, a creative person, um, you know, who, who is not in the world of food, um, what kind of words of encouragement would you give them for, for that kind of disobedience? Where does that come from? Do you have to, you know, does this, some people are disobedient, <laughs> that's their type, and they come naturally, or is it something that, can you learn it? Or is it something sort of innate? No, I think it's a very silent thing that it lives inside of, of us. 
And, you know, you, you don't have to be shouting disobedience in the streets or in your work. It's just a little thing inside that you says, well, no, eh, this I'm going to change. I'm going to be disobedient. I'm going to do it in a new way. Eh, and if, if you really believe in it, I think you, you will have a good time with it. You will learn a lot. Anyway, you know, you don't learn anything from success. All the learning comes from failure in life and in work and in love. So what would you consider to be your, your, your sort of greatest learning failure in your life? Um, well, probably when I was very young and I, I got kicked out from a three-star restaurant in Paris because I did something wrong and the chef shouted to me and I answered back why and then <laughs> just fired me. And that, you know that was that was that was good because he was nervous. He, we were having a bad night. Uh, it was Taillevant, the, the beautiful restaurant. Uh, and but it made me think a lot. You know, uh, the situation made me think. Not because I felt guilt of doing something that was wrong. I think he was very nervous, and and so that was a very good teaching for my career, you know, that when there's trouble, uh, you, you never have to react with a shout or with a decision. And, you know, you have to go through service and then after that, talk and see what happened. I was speaking to uh, a friend of mine who went to a large sort of fancy corporate uh, sort of entertaining meal outdoors. And uh, we were speaking about you and your work and they said, Please ask him, what does it feel like for his his life and his work to be so influential that has become sort of like a copied aesthetic that sometimes now people put on, even if they're not necessarily doing your actual cooking or actually the techniques, yeah. just the sort of a, a, a an aesthetic look of it. Um, <laughs> how do, does that make you feel uh, satisfied or or bitter or? Well, yes, you know, sometimes it makes me sad to see. I see it a lot in Instagram all around the world that they 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 cook with the techniques we use, and I see that just by looking at the photograph, that it's a complete disaster how they're doing it. But you know, anyway, maybe they, you know they they have to learn. They're starting. What is the mistake? What is the mistake you see on Instagram most? Well, especially when they hang food. You know, we started hanging food food from these domes that where we hang uh, pineapples and ribeyes and you know all sort of things. We hang them on top of a ring of fire. It's a beautiful technique, uh, and you know they they don't hang the, the things in the right way. The, the distance from the fire is wrong. It just they look as a, they they do it as an as an as an art thing you know maybe that people ah look at that they have this hung but I, I don't think anybody could have eaten it nicely it's, it doesn't look well done so it's a patience that you kind of can't really learn you have in a book you have to kind of do it a hundred thousand times right uh, books books are useless really <laughs> for what they're useless recipes you know you look at a recipe it's impossible you're going to make it because cooking is a silent language it's something that is inside of you by the act of repeating things 
it's it's a craft so you can't read a recipe and do it it's it's you know you can maybe make the colors or a bit of the taste but it's very difficult so um you have to practice. I think I can hear your agent, your book agent, uh, <laughs> screaming uh, at the top of their lungs from, from here in my, in my apartment. Before I let Malman go, I had to ask him for some advice. As the pandemic ends, I think the art of entertaining is going to come roaring back. And I think Malman's star is going to rise yet again. What makes a great host? What makes, you know, aside from the food, of course, but what makes a good host a great one? A great host is is a home, is your home or your restaurant or your hotel. But um, it's not trying to change everything because you're having guests. Is is showing who you are and how you live to a, to a guest. I think that's the beauty of of a host. You know if. If you buy a wine you never drink and a bread you never eat and you cook a fish that is expensive and you don't know, it will probably all be a disaster, you know. So, but if, if, if you host people in, with, with the spirit of your life, then it will be good for them and for you. Everybody will enjoy it. It doesn't mean that you don't make an extra effort. Obviously, you do, but you don't change everything. I always think that about about the about the brides. You know that I've, I've married so many ladies in my life, cooking for them, and I always see them so beautiful when they talk to me eight months before, and then the day of the wedding, they look horrible. They change their hair. They're all painted. They had this dress that has nothing to do with them, and and. And hosting is a bit that, you know, is looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, well, this is me. I'm going to get married and I'm going to use this little dress and this is my hair. And yes, I'll comb it. And, and hosting is the same. You, you don't want to go to a very difficult place and change things. Hosting is the most beautiful thing. I'm not sure what the situation might be in Argentina, but... Um here in New York and in LA, so many people are moving into the suburbs, into the country. They're buying a cabin in the woods. It's almost like you were like a Nostradamus sort of speaking about this sort of world to come uh, in such a positive light um, that may not have felt the same way back then. Is that something you've you've ever thought about? Do you, do you, do you feel it, that you've, you've kind of predicted the sort of world that we're in now? No, no, I never thought about that. Uh, but it's 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 related to my childhood in Patagonia. I was raised there, and there I learned uh, uh, the language of 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 that part of the world, you know, which is the the, the reading of the of the clouds and the rains and the snows and the rivers and the lakes and the trees. And it's again, it's like cooking. It's a silent language. You can't explain it, but you, I completely understand it and I, and I really need it. And I think that that light of that part of my life that inhabits me very strongly it was shown in the Netflix episode. And that's why I say it's sort of like a confession of my life. I always imagine myself cooking in a little place, being very old, almost on my own maybe with a dishwasher 
but I don't know if it's a dream or what, uh, you know, sort of, I would love to do that because it, re it reminds me of, of this uh, Japanese painter, uh, the one who painted the wave. What he said when he was 70, he said, well, uh, I'm, I'm, now I think I'm, ra I'm a rather good painter when he was 70. And then when he was 80, he said, well, now I'm really good but my perfection will arrive when I'm 90. And that's, that's the beauty of life, you know. I'm, I'm not afraid of aging. I love aging. I think it's so beautiful to age in every way. And uh, I think that it brings this, this stream of, of knowledge that, you know, we have to use it. It's, we have to use it. Thank you to Francis Malman and his team for setting up this remote chat from halfway around the world. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall, and a special thanks goes to Meg Connolly Communications. Transcriptions are by Kara Johnson, and for this first episode, a special thanks goes to Matthias Ernstberger for art direction. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein or at The Grand Tourist Podcast to learn more. And if you're able, please follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Once upon midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as if someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tea is some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember rocked its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished tomorrow, vainly I had sought to borrow, books from surcease of sorrow from my lost Lenore. For the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before. And to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, tea is some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a saintly raven from the saintly days of yours. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door. Perched above a bust of palace, just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Oh, bravo. Yeah, thank you so much. That was amazing. That was